welcome to part two of this year's three-part whiskeymentary about the whiskey tasting competitions on the Neat Glass-sponsored Whiskey Tanger Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Ed. And in this episode, which we're calling The Palette, coming as it is after last week's nosy introduction, we'll be getting into the tastier bits of our discussion about the competition circuit. To that end, we've enlisted the help of a couple distillers mm-hmm. in order to explore some of the pros and cons of these tasting tournaments. We'll also be quick tasting another whiskey spirit that's won an interesting set of awards this past year, which might echo the themes of this episode. But before we take a sip of all that, Ed's going to help us recall what we sniffed out last time by giving us a brief synopsis of part one, as well as who we'll be hearing from in part two. Yeah, thanks, Scott. If you haven't heard part one, er, stop right now. <laughs> Hit the pause button and go up one le- <laughs> one notch on whether it's Spotify or Apple yeah, or Podbean, you wherever you're listening, and listen to part one. For those who did listen to part one, you heard us do the history of the San Francisco World Spirit Competition, and then we talked about some other competitions. We highlighted six in total, including San Francisco. We did the New York International Spirits Competition, the International Whiskey Competition, the SIP Awards, the John Barleycorn Awards, and the Ascot Awards put on by our New Jersey's own Fred Minnick, <laughs> and uh, one day to be our best friend. So um, <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> we're the three best friends that anybody ever had. We're the three best friends that anybody ever had so, so um, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, we also did a fantastic interview with christopher davies who is linked to so many different yeah accomplishments in the industry first of all wine country international magazine the denver international spirits competition the tequila mezcal challenge north american bourbon and whiskey competition and he talked to us at length about his new global whiskey challenge which will take place in scotland japan before finishing up in new york with like this world series of whiskey with all of the winners yeah which scott and i we we are planning to attend new york yes we did quick tastes of the Blue Note Juke Joint and the Blue Note Juke Joint Uncut as they won different awards, and we were comparing them and seeing what we felt. Yeah. And they both came through pretty well. Yeah. I liked the Juke Joint better, and Scott liked the Uncut version better, and that's pretty you know, much how, yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. That's what we do. Yeah. For our second part, Christopher Davies is going to join us. Uh, I mean, he's already interviewed. We're going to take some things of what he said and drop it in here because some of what he said is relevant to what we want to accomplish on part two. Mm-hmm. We have Seth Benham from Infuse Spirits and particularly Broken Barrel Whiskey to talk about what it's like to enter bottles into these competitions, which he's done. Yeah. And then we talked to Nico Martini from Grayson, Texas Whiskey, who is a judge for the John Barleycorn Awards and the Ascot Awards, two of which we highlighted on part one. And he kind of talks about the process of being a judge and how each of the contests approach it and how he approaches it. So before we do the pros and cons of the whiskey competitions and take a closer look at them and talk to our guests, Scott's got a story like he often does. Yes. He's a storyteller. Yeah. Lots of times what you don't know is often on off nights, we'll Oh, no. We'll go out into the woods and build a campfire as you do. <laughs> With all the people from all the, the podcast. All the people from the podcast are there. You know, it's like a fairy tale land where we all live in cabins. And, <laughs> I bring my guitar. Um, it's in Gabe's territory. So Gabe's in charge. We're out into the Pine Barrens. And right. We go into a clearing. Yeah. We're very and, close to the Pine Barrens, yeah, actually. Yeah. The Pineys will clear out the debris and build a fire for us and then scurry back into yeah. the forest. Gabe will wave his arms. And, and, they, and they scurry back. Yes. And then we'll gather around and Scott will come out. We'll all pour a nice little libation of our favorite spirits of the moment and he'll regale us with tales and stories whether they be from Northland the Vikings and or perhaps <laughs> the indigenous people of South America and just be raptured by the words and, and invigorated by the storytelling of, <clears throat> of what Scott brings to the spoken word. Thank you. Every word of that is true. 
<laughs> yes. In fact, we can't wait to get out into the wilderness. It's only 47 with wind today. What a lovely day it would be. Oh, oh, it's terrible. It's, it's rainy and overcast. And so anyway, yeah. <clears throat> so this was a story that I came upon a while ago and I wanted to tell on the podcast, but it would never was really appropriate. But it has to do with the tasting competition. So I wanted to do it on here. Great. This was about a tasting competition that kind of went awry mm. the way that people did not expect it to go. I'm calling this the Judgment of Paris. Okay. This is from a Time Magazine article titled, How America Kicked France in the Pants and Changed the World of Wine Forever. Wow. Yeah. Before 1976, the words Judgment of Paris called to mind a Greek myth in which the son of a king named Paris was asked to decide which goddess was the fairest of them all. And when Aphrodite promised Paris the love of Helen of Troy, it started a chain of events that led to the fall of an entire city-state. But in 1976, the words Judgment of Paris were used to describe a contest that toppled a different kind of regime, the long-presumed supremacy of French wine. Hmm. The story begins with Stephen Spurrier, a British man who ran a wine shop in Paris. Because he spoke English, winemakers from California's Napa Valley would often travel there with their wines, hoping to gain a foothold in the country. But back then, California wine basically didn't exist for the French, and Americans weren't drinking much of it either, largely oblivious to the rather expensive for the time $6 bottles <laughs> from vineyards north of San Francisco. Indeed, the French had completely bamboozled the entire world into thinking that you could only make great wines in France, which had the perfect climate the perfect earth and the perfect grapes. France was alone on a very tall pedestal, but all that was about to change. Because when Spurrier actually tasted the American wines, they didn't just exist, they were good, very good. And when his colleague Patricia Gallagher came up with the idea of hosting a California wine tasting in Paris to mark America's bicentennial, Spurrier quickly agreed. Gallagher chose six brands, each from four different styles, California Chardonnay and Cabernet and French Bordeaux and Burgundy. While Spurrier secured a room at the Intercontinental Hotel, he even invited the press. But as former Time reporter George Tabor remembers, everybody turned the invitation down. I was the only one to show up, and even I turned it down the first time. Everybody knew that French wines were going to win, so why waste a day? Nobody took it seriously. Despite the press not showing up, the double-blind contest went on as planned, with nine French judges drawing from an onophile's who's who. The whites were tasted first, and as they swirled, sniffed, sipped, and spat, some judges seemed instantly able to separate the imported American upstarts from the established European aristocrats. More often, though, the panel was just confused. Ah, back to France, exclaimed one judge after unknown sipping a 1972 California Chardonnay, and after downing a 1973 French white Burgundy, another judge said, that's definitely California. It has no nose. And so, when the results were in, Spurrier announced that they had tabulated the winner, a 1973 Chardonnay from Chateau Montalena in Calistoga, California. Stunned silence filled the room, and the French judges were decidedly not elated. There was much consternation and even mumbled accusations of there somehow being a fix in favor of the California wines. It got so bad that, as the reds were being handed out, Spurrier recalled thinking that the judges were now determined to pick a French winner from among the reds, no matter what, and Tabor believed the same. But after the reds were tasted, the judges soon realized, to their absolute dismay, that they had done it again. <laughs> the top-marked red they chose was the Cabernet Sauvignon from Stag's Leap Wine Cellars in California, a bottle that the Smithsonian later honored as one of the 101 objects that, quote, made America, alongside Meriwether Lewis's compass and Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. That's stupid. It's rare that I call the Smithsonian stupid, but out of a hundred things in the country's history, you chose that bottle of wine. To me, that just gives the French too much credit. <laughs> Which, by the way, French is the only word in French that I pronounce. Right. French fries. French well, toast. No, but what, they don't really call them French, do they? 
uh, I don't know what they call themselves. Like Francais? Like, like German is Deutschlanders in mm. Deutschland. They don't call themselves German. We do. Gaul? I mean, yes, if we're going back a thousand years, Scott, yes, they call themselves Gaul. Well, you have some Gaul. <laughs> All right, anyway. And the consequences were swift. Napa Valley was officially on the map, and the tasting boosted other areas of California like Sonoma County and the Central Coast. Financial investments started rolling in, as did French citizens who traveled there to see what all the fuss was about. And what they found was that there was fine terroir outside of France. In 1976, there were under 300 wineries in California. Today, there were over 3,000. I can't believe there's only 3,000. I feel like there's so much wine in California. Uh, there's a lot of wine. I mean, each one probably has dozens and dozens I mean, of styles. And really, no state wine more than California while we're at Hello. it. Hello. <laughs> there were some casualties, however. Spurrier, who set up the event, got barred from wine cellars all over France for the crime of organizing the humiliation of an entire country. <laughs> and even several of the judges were asked to resign from positions of honor and recognition. But because Time Magazine didn't print bylines of human interest stories back then, Tabor was spared any blowback. And despite the French press threatening to blacklist anyone who reported on the contest, the four paragraphs that Tabor wrote about that day are almost entirely responsible for the eventual fallout and progress. And as they say, the rest is wine and tasting competition history. Well, it's a great story. Isn't that cool? I just thought that would be a good jumping off point for our discussion about the pros and cons of whiskey tasting competitions because ask the French how they felt about that outcome. And I think that wine is where this all starts. Okay. Wine is one of the first spirits that's judged. You know, I've drank some red wine, but I'm not a wine guy. I'm not a, what type of file am I not? An onophile. I'm not an onophile. But if I'm going to someone's house for dinner and I got to grab a red, I walk in the liquor store. You know what? If it says the little 96 tag hanging on it, I'm like, well, I'm going to leave the tag on there. Yeah. And they're going to be like, well, it's a good bottle of wine. Yeah. And if we don't like it, it's not my fault. So I really take the rating serious. And we're going to talk about how to apply that to whiskey in this episode. Yeah. That'll be one of the things we talk about. Absolutely. In one of the subjects. So the first one I want to talk about. The allegations of bias and rigging, like anytime you have a contest and you have a loser, yeah. there's going to be someone whining about, oh, it was rigged against me. Which we just saw in the story. All the French exactly. judges thought that it was rigged against the French wines. Yeah, exactly. But I know what my impression is after talking to the people that we talked to and all the research that we did. Yeah. I want to see what you what you yeah, think about sure. this. Um, speaking of the French judges at the wine thing, it's kind of how Scott and I felt when Bullet Rye won our first Whiskey Madness. Mm-hmm. Out of 16 whiskeys, Bullet Rye won the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, we felt a little bit like, um, you know, yeah, imposter syndrome. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we thought like, wow, we don't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> Anders did too. Anders, I said, oh my God, did I really pick Bullet Rye right. as the winner? And, and granted, our palates weren't as polished then as they are now, but Anders sure as hell was. Mm. He had many years in the industry. So yeah. I know what that felt like, you know, because there were certainly about six or seven other whiskeys that you would say were perceived higher than Bullet Rye. Sure. Oh, yeah. Now, Bullet Rye didn't go against every single one of them, of course. No, no. They're brackets. So Bullet Rye had to beat the rise first i think it upset will it family estate rise that did. was the big upset for me yeah. and it, oh and pikesville rye didn't make it out of there yep. either yep. so both of them i thought were better rise on paper but 
that and it could have been that particular batch of bullet and you know it comes from mgp and they make great stuff so bullet rye is underrated anyway and for the price it's a must buy right. i mean it makes great cocktails and everything else so yeah. well no one was really alleging that we had some bias or rigging, no 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 but, but i mean like i know what it felt like when we didn't think the one that we thought would win would win yeah now as far as rigging i mean can i sit here and say that of the dozens and dozens of competitions out there there's not a pay for play one possibly but the six that we highlighted and ones at that level i believe that with that many people involved any manipulation would be incredibly difficult to pull off now whether there's pressure from the competition to give out enough awards where at least someone gets a silver for their efforts i don't know that's something we can talk about looking at the numbers but so but i agree so my take was after talking to everybody and all the research that there's just so many judges and everything is done double blind it would be impossible to rig anything yeah because somebody would talk like if somebody was influenced or something they were paid off you can't pay off everybody Mm -hmm. and you'd have to pay off everybody to get a particular whiskey to win right nico had a lot to say about this particular topic my first one was the barley corn awards and the way that it all came about my buddy john mccarthy who used to be the head spirits writer for men's health and a bunch of other stuff and he had this idea of like what if the uber whiskey nerds had their own sort of competition. And so he got a hold of Clay Risen and he got a hold of Fred Minnick and he got a hold of like all of the bougiest of the bougie uh, whiskey writers and media people and created this barley corn society, completely blind, kind of focusing on the, the quality of the judges more than anything. He wanted to kind of pare it down so that if nothing else, you can like go to this page and see every single judge that I've got has a pedigree of some sort. Also, in part one, you asked Christopher how you kind of head off allegations of bias. And his answer was that basically by being transparent and providing the brands with the judges tasting notes with the, the constructive criticism. Yes. And Nico also echoed that sentiment. So the way that Barleycorn and Ascot both work is they give you just enough information to have a concept of what you're dealing with. This is an American single malt. It is 96 proof. But that's about it. And so as judges, what we're trying to do is we're being very, very frank. We're trying to, A, give them something they can use as a note. B, give them constructive criticism if we feel like it's necessary. And C, kind of mention things that sort of might not necessarily go noticed otherwise. You know, if you keep getting this note from this one, then you could kind of be like, okay, this is the thing that's that's most prevalent from you guys. It feels like you're pushing it too much. To use an example that's not necessarily whiskey, if you're making a lemon-flavored vodka and the lemon that you're using is just incredibly acidic and it's just not working, give that to the right person. They may completely change their product. Yeah, he's like, listen, like it's anonymous in the fact that you don't really find out who judged you, but the judge's information, I think, appropriately is shared with you. Because remember, if you're talking about a, a whiskey that's a silver, they probably like, this is pretty good, but you know. It uh, didn't beat the other one. We drank one before the show tonight. It was my birthday present from Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a bottle of Stranahan's Blue Peak single malt whiskey yeah. from Colorado, and it was delicious. And it won a gold in San Francisco. Right. And a silver at the Ascots? Uh, bronze at the international whiskey competition it didn't win a silver anywhere no oh yeah the bronze isn't good but the golden (laughs) san francisco is pretty good now i can tell you why it doesn't have a very long strong finish but the nose and the palate's very very good on it i enjoyed the hell of it yeah 
So for you know a whiskey like that, if I heard it got a gold in San Francisco, it might provoke me enough to try it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it possibly influencing you to buy yeah. that kind of leads us into the next topic, which we levied in last year's whiskeymentary yeah. is that they fuel the secondary market. Right. So we resent it in the sense that I think they gave out something like 79 double golds at San Francisco last year or the year before. Well, they gave more this year. We'll get to that. All right. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily shake the market. But if your whiskey wins best in class or best in show, well, then you're off and running. Yeah. So again, part one, we mentioned yeah. the Henry McKenna and well. the Pappy win and Tito's Vodka and Barrel Crest Spirits and everything. And Seth at Broken Barrel or Infused Spirits at the time initially made his mark with the awards with the vodka. Yeah. And he talked about that. And he also said it can also, though, be a kind of a mixed bag. I have participated in award competitions virtually every year since we started the company. It was a really great experience, especially that first year, 2014. On the vodka side, we won the double gold best in show for our cinnamon apple vodka. And then we got the double gold best in show again from their sister competition, the New York World Spirits Competition. That was for an orange uh, vodka. So those two vodkas kind of kicked it off and I go, man, this is great. This is so much fun. You submit, you get best in show, you know, this is going to open up the world for us. And you know, it doesn't hurt, but does the world change? Does everything suddenly overnight, all the doors open up? Not necessarily. I think there are some awards that'll really lift sales or draw attention. And I think there's a lot of different buckets that go along with the competitions in terms of what the industry thinks and what it'll do for a brand within the ranks of its peers, buyers, distributors. And then there's what awards do for the consumer. And so how does the consumer perceive various awards or scores and competitions for that matter? And the two industry and non-industry aspects of it, I think, are very different. In fact, all three of our interviewees seem to think that there was actually a lack of use of the awards in marketing for some of the brands. Yeah. Like they weren't really taking advantage of it. Christopher mentioned that companies don't take advantage of the wins. I think it has a very big impact, but it really depends on the producer and how they market their win. There are some that really do a great job, and there are others that just let it go to the wayside and they don't really promote it, and that's a shame. And Nico also echoed the sentiment that brands need to take more advantage because there are a lot of competitions out there yeah. and there aren't a lot of indications on the shelf at the point of sale right. where you might expect them to be. There's shockingly little ratings that are actually in front of the consumer when they are making the purchase. It is yeah. beyond me why people haven't utilized, like the fact that this isn't just permeating our, our industry. If Fred decided, you know what, I'm actually going to put numbers on these things and okay. he gave Grayson the 99, I'm sure as fuck going to put that on my bottle. Seth also seems to think that it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between brands and the competitions. And sometimes you get these situations where does the award make the brand or does the brand make the award? And so a well, great example uh, here, I'll reach up and get one. I would have never known about it, but I've been seeing it for years and years and years on the front and center of Cavalon's box is that World Whiskey Awards. I would argue that Cavalon has made these guys perfect harmony. Similar like to those little red circles with the scores in them, it's Ultimate Spirits Challenge. I've been seeing those logos for years on Barrel Craft Spirits. They were entering that competition before I even knew what that competition was. 
It's like, damn, I've never heard of this competition. So I would argue Barrel certainly helped that competition get on my radar. I mean, Barrel did the marketing for them. They get to a brand like me who then in turn entered and so on and so forth. And I happen to agree with that. If you're getting double gold, if you're getting bronze, and I don't think that's a mutually exclusive. It's mean someone just well, took, someone just took your five hundred dollars. That's true. That's true. So the next topic, I think, this sort of leads into that is like, are these things just a marketing tool? Yeah. Well, they're not just a marketing tool, but they're definitely a marketing tool, and whatever right. else they may be. Well, all right. So let's look at the motivation. Okay. All right. Now, the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. So let's say you're putting that on. Why are you putting that on? Mm. Well. I mean, I'm sure you would say it's your love of the industry and the products. Mm -hmm. But I do think with the vast amount of entries into the San Francisco World Spirits Competition and the sister competition, the New York World Spirits Competition, they probably generate a decent amount of money. I mean, I don't know if it's astronomical. Well... Do you know? Yeah, so they got almost 5,000 entries. So 5,000 times $550. Uh, Let me calculator out. Right. So what? So I, so I wonder what the total gross amount of money they have to deal with in San Francisco. Okay. So the total of that is $2.75 million. Right. Not too shabby. No. And their expenses are basically renting a hotel floor for five days or so. Yeah. Right. Maybe um, flying some people out. People lunch. Out, lunch and food for, for, you know, for right. four or five days. Sure. Water, I mean, yeah. Glassware. So, I mean, I'm sure that their expenses are more than I imagine. But let's go crazy and say it costs a million dollars to put it on. Right. They're still making $1.75 million in profit. Right. That's a crazy amount of money. It's pretty good. For it. Oh, you can we, get it. Yeah. They also put other stuff together, I think. That's not all they do, right? Because they know they have an online magazine or something as well. So, mm. But anyway, so what's the motivation? Is it just to make that million or $2 million profit? I don't know. I, I mean, I, it, it, you can't just compartmentalize that as a money grab. I mean, the right. amount of work that goes into this, there has to be a love affair with the industry, with the distilleries. Yeah, because I think also you wouldn't be able to get good judges to yeah. judge your products that are entered right. into your contest. I think it's wrong to shame people for making a couple dollars for working hard to promote something they love. You know, like we want starving artists. Like if you, you know, <laughs> if you make pottery and end up, what, they made $60,000 selling pottery? Well, shit, I thought they were starving artists and you're mad somehow. Like, <laughs> right. like you know, how dare they feed right. themselves? Right. So the fact that with all the work that San Francisco World Spirits Competition and whether you're the North American Bourbon and Whiskey Competition or whether you're the SIP Awards or whether you're the John Party Corn Awards, you are promoting the industry you're promoting new products you're educating informing the public about new trends Mm -hmm. i mean so i would say that they're good with some side effects yeah they're like a medication you know it cures your illness but it gives you a rash yeah (laughs) i mean it's like the side effect is you don't die you thrive but you have a rash you know what i mean and that rash is i can't find henry kind of tenure for five years (laughs) so so let me get your take on this basically with most of these contests after you right. win, you have to buy your rewards. So right. in the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, their digital image unlimited use license is $200 per product. So wait, you're telling me that I've won double gold. Yeah. Now, just to have an email copy of that award is $200? Yes. All right. See, now that kind of takes away from the fact that I said it wasn't a money grab. <laughs> That's a little rude. That's right. So physical labels of the metals. So they'll send you a roll of a thousand for $60. Like to stick on bottles? Yeah, to stick on bottles. A thousand for $60. Yeah. So I'm going to put out 10,000 bottles this year. $600. So the point of sale marketing hang tags are 40 cents each. And a shelf talker, you know, they put it on the thing on the shelf is 80 cents each. So if that's every liquor store you're going to be in. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. 
Wow. I'm learning this right along with you, everybody. Yeah. I am just as aghast. Remember, I was a teacher in my formal life. Stickers are not that much money. No, right? So the International Whiskey Competition, they only sell digital image unlimited use licenses, $300 per winning product. So that's actually more than the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. The SIP Awards sells physical medals, $50. Okay. Plus nine fifty shipping. I mean, I would want plaques for my office, you know. Well, well they have trophies. for shipping. Now listen to me. Not only was I a teacher, but I also was an athletic director as well. That's an obscene amount for a trophy. (laughs) All right? I'll tell you because I bought Scott a trophy for editing. Right. We mentioned it in the first episode. What was that, like 10 bucks? It was (laughs) $13.75 with a $7 shipping fee. All right? (laughs) And it was was a little trophy. And I bet you theirs is probably a $25 trophy. That's what the trophies look like. Mm, that's a nice trophy, though. It is nice. It's like a uh, pentagonal. Yeah, and it's like composite. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Um, All it, black. You know, it looks like it looks like your twentieth year at the company. Oh one. yeah. <laughs> so it totally does. That's probably a seventy to an eighty dollar trophy. Mm. That's a nice trophy, but two twenty five successor. So their uh, digital image unlimited license is free for one year, but two hundred for a lifetime one all right i have to tell you one year is good you need it for longer than that and and this is another thing we can talk about how long can you milk a win yeah so if my whiskey hits in 2023 as a double gold i think if i'm in 2026 i don't think anyone gives a damn anymore i think you're like "Mm." i know after five years i don't care right i really don't so you're wasting your time and money if you're if, if that's all you're hyping but i think seth said something about that too he did I think there's also a a longevity to how you use the awards. Like we have a 2014, as I mentioned, best in show. Is 2014's best in show still showing up on most of our marketing material? Not so much. Is it time for us to probably resubmit some of our vodkas? Absolutely. So will you see us investing back into call it San Francisco World Spirits or another award competition in the spring or in you know late winter? Yeah, definitely we're going to submit some more vodkas. It's been a while and we have a new facility. So we want to just kind of check the scoring with the new juice. Certainly that's a good reason to do it. So the most interesting one was the John Barleycorn Awards. Yeah. They have a statue. It's yes. $220. Okay. Uh, it kind of looks like an Oscar a little bit. Yeah, it's fine. They have certificates, which was interesting. Sure. Uh, the first one is free. Yeah. So you get one certificate for free. Right. Every other certificate you want, they want $35 for. That's fine. But listen, with 3D and laser printers, you can probably reproduce that at home. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. You, yeah, maybe well, you I mean, if I had a corporate office, I'd sure. want this John Barleycorn statue. I would pay for that. Right. If you're winning something worthwhile, then you don't mind spending a couple extra dollars. One more thing for the John Mulder Awards. Wait, no, two more things. So they're bottle stickers. Remember, you were yeah. mad at $60 per roll. Yeah. What do you think about $150 for a roll of 1,000 stickers? <laughs> I mean, I guess the point is you don't have to buy them. You don't. So they also have something called the Barleycorn Bottle Glorifier for $299. <laughs> The glorifier is an 11 and a half inch wide by nine and a half inch deep by four inch tall walnut box lasered with the John Barleycorn logo. On top is a gold pedestal that displays your winning bottle next to an indentation that holds your personally engraved statuette. I really, I really try to be good on the whiskey mattress, <laughs> but the <laughs> references that are running through my mind, I don't want to do this i want this to be shareable and promote the podcast. right no, i'm trying fine. to be good i don't I, want to do I, all right i'm not doing it but well stop saying 
But I need to beep it. You said it like, oh shit, I said it too. I told you to pause. Oh no, I didn't pause. No, I told you to pause. No, it's all going to be on. No. Yeah, but I'm going to beep. It'll be hysterical. Okay. So this is what it looks like. You can buy this for $300. The statuette is not included, but it has a hole for it. So basically, if you buy this, you have so to what buy is the statue. It? It's a stand that you put your bottle on. Why so is it $300? I don't know. It's genuine walnut. <laughs> walnut just sounds like a... See, I'm doing it again. See, you're doing it again. Be good, Ed. Be good. So the Ascot Awards are basically the same as that. And the only one that I, of the six that we did yeah. that doesn't charge anything are the New York International Spirits Competition. Their digital images are completely free and they don't have bottle stickers yet, but they are in discussions to order medals directly from a sticker company at no compensation for them. All right. Now, I will say this, and I, I think that's crazy. I don't think it's unfair to say I'm going to pass on the cost of the stickers to you plus 10% for my effort plus shipping. Sure. You, you know? Yeah. So capitalism. Right. Yeah. 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 Right? I totally agree. I think they're, they're gouging people a little bit. bit. And you know, they kind of have them over the barrel, uh, no pun intended, because they won an award and if they want to promote it, they're going to pay to promote it. All right. But I'm going to argue with you at the side of the competitions. Okay. We put the time in, we created the competition and you're coming along gleaning off of our reputation, right? When we give you double gold, it means a hell of a lot more than the Trent, New Jersey <laughs> Whiskey Spirits competition or the Phoenix, Arizona Open. Right. So it's like, you know what you're paying for when you join us. Mm -hmm. If you get the double gold, you're living and feasting off of our reputation that we've spent two decades developing. Yeah. And for that, you're going to pay us $60 for a roll of a thousand stickers and you're going to like it. <laughs> and and I think that's easy to bash these competitions as being gougers, which sure. you just called them and you might not be wrong <laughs> but the point is there's another side to it we've never run a competition imagine all the awards that you're shipping around the world i mean it can get to the tens of thousands of dollars you yeah know? so with all that monetary thing that we talked about mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. past 10 minutes you can see how it might lead to allegations that you're just buying an award right but nico had something to say about this as well Speaking of the money thing, it's so exhausting to facilitate an awards. It takes so much effort mm -hmm. and there's so many moving parts. And I understand the whole, oh, they bought their award. Okay. If you want to get real technical, it costs $350 to enter that bottle of whiskey in that competition. And I got a gold. Did I buy it? I don't know. You tell me. Did I buy that gold? The fact that these things cost money is fine. It takes so much effort to make these competitions actually be worthwhile for the consumer and for the brand that it should absolutely cost money. So that was an interesting perspective. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was the high winner to entrant ratio. And I'm going to pick on San Francisco World Spirits Competition because sure. they're the big one. Sure. They had uh, 5,000 entries. As I said earlier, they gave over, you ready? Yeah. 4,000 awards. Out of 5,000 entries? Yeah. 2,000 of which were double gold. Not just whiskeys, but all spirits. All right. Gives it pause. All right. But I'll say this. Okay. Really, double gold is the only award that matters. I mean, gold's not terrible. You can right. parlay that to a consumer that doesn't quite know. And a good amount are silvers and bronzes. Right. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is if you break them into quadrants, right? The top 40% were mm -hmm. double gold. The middle 20% were gold. Second to bottom would be silver, and then the last would be bronze or nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, once again, I'm, I can't believe how much I'm referring my teaching career today, but <laughs> if I'm doing a test, 40% of my kids should get an A or at least a high B. Yeah. 
I don't think that those numbers are as soft as they sound initially. And the fact that people are only putting up shit they think is good. I know from American Idol that everyone thinks they can sing evidently, but <laughs> I'm sure some people think their whiskey's great when it's not. But I think like if you have 10 whiskeys, you're like, well, this one's really good, right? Yeah. This is our favorite. So yep. we're going to put this up and see how it does. So I think what you're getting is 5,000 that the companies think are pretty special. And then 40% of them are awarded pretty special. Mm-hmm. So I will continue in that vein then. Maybe that just says how much really good whiskey is out there. Yeah. I mean, listen, Scott and I have tasted on here products that we've bought, that we've wanted to try, products that have been sent to us by distilleries. And when we get a bottle, people ask us, do you feel obligated if someone sends you a free bottle to gush over it? No. No, I really don't. No, um, the don't. obligation, honestly, that I feel is to be fair to it. Right. And I would say that 80% of the whiskey we've selected, yeah, it's going to be good. It's true. Right. So I was thinking about that as well. It's like, you know, we have a podcast. We've tasted maybe 200 whiskeys and we've liked 187. Yeah. <laughs> and the other 13, we just thought we're not very well, good at well, all. We, but let's not fair either to us. We don't like them all evenly. No, we don't. We didn't we, give them awards. Right. We have a threshold that you can drink this and enjoy it. Some would get bronze. Right. <laughs> Even something like the Terry Bradshaw whiskey, it was drinkable. Right. It that was, was 40, a bronze. It was $45. It was drinkable. Yeah. We didn't pour it out. We didn't shit on it. No, it was I like, still hey, have it. Yeah. I still have it. But the fact that he still has it from a year ago is all you need to know. Exactly. It's drinkable when you're out of everything else. Yeah. So Seth basically ended up saying that it's bad, but still winning. And basically just what you said, still winning a gold or a double gold yeah. is still a good thing. I've entered competitions with various products over the years and not won something. Like we had a single oak whiskey that we entered in some obscure competition that I had never entered before and did not win an award, period. So I do know that there is a situation where you can enter and not win. But if there are a hundred entries in the zero to five year Kentucky bourbon, no finish and 90 out of a hundred get an award. Yeah. It's pretty much a participation at that point, but the people that get gold and double gold should still feel good because they certainly made it through the noise. So they're the top froth of the latte. Just the ambition to bring a product to market and have the wherewithal to jump into the spear competition and win. I mean, he's a modern day pioneer, in my opinion. In Broken Barrel, it's because he breaks up the barrels and uses the wood staves, which is, you know, we've seen bigger companies like Maker's Mark do, but Seth was doing it as early as anybody. Definitely, definitely. So uh, the next topic that I have is, do competitions really matter because it's all subjective anyway? Right. Different people taste different things. And uh, judging in our research and talking to uh, Nico especially, it's, it just sounds like a grind. Mm. Like there's so many whiskeys, there's so many rounds and you have to taste all these things. We try to be thoughtful, at least that's what we're told to be. Only taste like six or seven in a day, in an evening, and then you go back to it and then, you know, you don't burn out your palate. Please don't taste 25 whiskeys in one day. It's a little daunting. I have my samples with a month and a half ahead of time. And so I've got six weeks to get through all of this. And it's usually around, if they're in a jam, it's like 75, it's usually around 50. Yeah, swallow or spit? I think that's an important question. 
Depends on how much I like it, frankly. The <laughs> uh, criteria that they give you, is it like wait 20 minutes between each tasting or only taste a little bit? Is it very rigid or is it sort of like, you know, just be a good person and judge it? Yeah, by? just kind of don't be an asshole. Yeah, you're an asshole if you waited until the night before and then submitted. To <laughs> and your notes were garbage because you were also in a hurry. So, yeah, it, it's a really interesting process to be a part of and just kind of seeing from the totally <laughs> perspective yeah because he was specifically the ascot awards and the john barleycorn awards where he was tasting it at home but the san francisco world spirits competition where everybody's together in like this yeah. big room they only have like three minutes yeah to taste like maybe as much as eight or 12 per flight and that's just crazy wait it's wait just, three for i mean three minutes each whiskey three minutes per whiskey okay well I mean, not the for the entire flight you no. said that it's not like it's like boom boom <laughs> boom like just doing shots of jameson no like, sorry three minutes <laughs> per whiskey but the flights yeah. might be as many when as i was a, when i was a kid like in like 20s i would come into a bar and if my friends had been there a bit i'd just be like yeah let me get a beer and two shots like shot shot chug the beer order beer all right now i'm good let's let's go i'm caught up everybody <laughs> yeah I mean, others have less than that, and others do one at a time, but, you know, it's a lot of whiskey to tasted ones. In spirits, in general, because you're dealing with an average of, you know, 45% alcohol, you cannot judge as many products as you would do, let's say, if it was a wine tasting. We have crackers and, you know, lots of water. They are spitting all the time, and then we do a nice lunch. Let's say we have 10 American single malt whiskeys. The same table will do all of those. And they might get four in the first flight, another four in the second, and then the last two. Because they'll be able to really focus on that niche. The products have distinct ID numbers. So they write down the numbers for the ones that they think are unique or special. And then at the end of the competition, they can go into the room and look at the bottles and find the ones that they like. But everything is done double blind. We have two rooms. One is the judging room. And the second room is what we call the war room or the fun room. And that's where all the volunteers and the staff are opening up the bottles and organizing things for the flights. However, competitions can only judge what they're submitted. So uh, one of the criticisms is what's entered might not always be representative of what consumers can get off the shelf. So I found a blog entry right, right, right. from Bourbon R. And so he says, in the 80s, a blind tasting was set up between Maker's Mark and Blanton's to decide which bourbon was better. Blanton's won repeatedly until Maker's Mark called foul. Evidently, the bottle of Maker's Mark that was used was selected at random from a liquor store shelf, whereas the Blanton's was taken from an exceptionally high quality barrel and bottled for just that occasion. Oh, well, so what? thus not representative of what consumers would be buying. I disagree with that because it was taken from a barrel Blanton's. The, the distiller just thought it was the best tasting one. That's Baker's Mark fault for, they've been around since the 50s. They couldn't figure out how to do that? Well, right. That's So that's what this guy <laughs> says. That's actually really smart and I'm sure right. it could be going on today. Right. Since brands send their own bottles, there's nothing to prevent it. You should do that. I mean, so I'm spending $5.50. I'm going to go into the warehouse. Hey, Ted, my master distiller. What's up, Ed? <laughs> I'm sending a bottle. Ted and Ed. Nice. Right. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, random belligerous rye, <laughs> right? Whatever the two bottles you think are best, and we're going to send them out to the competition. I, I mean, if you're not doing that, I think you're a jackass. And to say that the public can't get that, 
hey, I'm pulling it out of a barrel. Now, my master distiller thinks it's the best barrel that we have, but that's his opinion. You're going to get the barrel right next to it. It's probably just as good. So I dispute that. Well, I mean. I dispute that blogger L or whatever your name is. (laughs) No, actually, he agreed with you. He said it was smart. Good job, blogger L. (laughs) Oh, now you like him now. That's right. (laughs) Because he agreed with you. Absolutely. Egomaniac. So him. (laughs) All right. So uh, what I thought was interesting uh, about this particular thing where judges can only judge what they've been given. Right. In the six best in show whiskeys, their mm. top, top award that they gave to a singular whiskey over the entire competition. Who are we talking about? Sam France still? For all six. Oh, all six competitions that we highlighted. Yes. Which again, for everybody, was the Ascots, the John Barleycorn, the SIP Awards, the International Whiskey Competition, the New York International Spirit Competition, and the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. So the San Francisco voted best in show the Ben Romach aged 40 years single malt scotch. It didn't win a single award in the other five. Was it even entered? I don't know. Right, because there isn't a lot of that around. So in the John Bodicarn Award, Cotswold Bourbon Cast Single Malt Whiskey, which also did not win a single award in the other five. I've never heard of it, so good for them. <laughs> Uh, the Ascots, the Whiskey of the Year, of course, was the Journeyman Corsets Whips and Whiskey, yes. which also did not win a single award in any of the other five. I find that shocking because Journeyman is a small up-and-coming company, and it's everywhere if you're looking for it, and it's delicious. And Scott and I felt it was exceptional before we even knew about it being in the Ascots. I often ask Scott a lot when I have opinions on whiskey. <laughs> Scott. Yeah, I've, had the, I've had the Ascot Awards all the time. Like, <laughs> Scott, do you like it? He goes, yeah. I go, shit, look at that. I asked Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Ed wins the award it's, for asking me a lot of questions. That's right. right. Would you drink this? Oh, okay. Sh- oh, shit. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, the international whiskey competition, the whiskey of the year was the Abelorabuna Batch 70. <laughs> I mean, we, we love that whiskey, man. That that whiskey blew me away on Christmas, what, two years ago? Yeah, I think we had Batch 63, as I, if I recall correctly. Whatever. I was batshit crazy over Batch 63. I'll tell you that right now. Wow. The uh, the Abelor Abuna is a delicious whiskey. So if you like Space Light Scotches, I think it's one of the top five I've ever had. So it is strange that it didn't win anything other. So they just didn't yeah, I mean, they might, give I'm, it to? Yeah, maybe. Right, so I don't know because right. they don't tell you which ones entered and didn't win. I'm going to say this. I'm going to be make a bold statement. If it didn't win something, it wasn't entered. It's that good of a whiskey. And this award had also one called OH Ingram River Aged Flagship Bourbon Whiskey that won their best of class platinum win. And it did win a gold again at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, but nothing again in the other four. Mm. But, you know, I just think it's interesting to see that among, well, so the five, so the New York didn't actually have a a top whiskey. They don't really do that. Really? But of the five that give a top whiskey of the year award of some sort, only twice did it appear in the other whiskeys competitions. Yeah. So is that selection? As Scott know. indicates, yeah. Or we'd have to talk to the distiller and be like, "I put it in these six competitions, and I only won one. So one's double gold. The other ones are all nothing." That would be interesting to see, but we don't have any evidence for that right now. We really don't. We don't. But I also think it could be just the, the differing tastes that everybody has. Everybody has a different palate, right? I think it's more what Seth said. You can't enter every award competition. You just don't have the money for it. So right, you pick and choose, which is why San Francisco gets five thousand entries, and then. But here's the thing. I have to tell you, if you're not that confident, then you jump into something with like 800 because you're like, that's less competition for mine to, to kind of thrive. Right. So this is exactly what our next and last topic before we right. do the quick taste of the spirit that we have tonight. And there's just too many competitions. Right. There's too many awards and that just generates customer confusion. 
The problem with most of it now is that number one, there's too many competitions. So it is daunting. I do not envy the the person that long ran in the last two years and is being just bombarded with I mean, I am slammed almost every day of the year email about some entry to some competition somewhere, five hundred dollars a skew, send me two bottles. I mean, this shit adds up. Like, oh, you think I have a $50,000, $100,000 a year to burn? You know, I have a lot of products. It's just too much. But what was also interesting is that Nico yeah. sort of had the opposite thing. He wants more competitions. Bring them on, bro. Here's your hot take. I don't think there's enough of them. I think there should be more. I think that we should have ratings like wine does. I think that you should be able to walk into a store and look at a little piece of paper and align yourself with the fact that I can't stand wine enthusiasts. But man, does James Suckling know my palate. And if that fucker gives a 95 to something, I'm going to absolutely love it. And I love that because then if I walk in and I see a new bottle of wine that James Suckling has given to 95, I'm going to be interested in that. I think we should have more of those things. Right. But I think what Nico really was saying is he wants what I'm envisioning, some type of an all-star team of the competitions that comes together in the whiskey advocate format with a numbered system where everybody agrees that the Blue Note Juke Joint whiskey is an 89 and that the Stellum Fibonacci is a 96 and that the Redwood Empire Lost Monarch is a 90 Mm -hmm. and the Stranahan's Blue Peak is whatever and that everyone just agrees on that and when you go into the store that's how you can go you know anything 80 and above is very drinkable 85 is good 90 is very good i mean 90 you're looking at your elijah craig barrel strength willet estate family state rye yeah so nico and seth touted the advantage of ratings being better evaluations than medals were It's wine's fault. It's absolutely wine's (laughs) fault. When you walk into a store and you are looking at bottles, there's the wine section where it's very, very simple. And you just find the high number that you like and you haven't even had to hurt of of anything. You don't even know what the hell these wines are, but they got a 96. And so you're willing to try it. And if it's good, you're going to keep buying it and good for that bodega. When you look at the marketing material and how big you can make those 97 points, the question really becomes, does the Binnie's buyer care about that spirits competition? Getting a score of like 97 is based on how good the whiskey was and what the people thought, how it tasted versus the metals, which generally one of these is gold, which one is silver, which one's bronze or which one's not moving forward, which is a way of judging the whiskey or the the spirit. But now who got the best score? Because the medals are confusing. Medal levels mean different things at different competitions, and the consumers don't really know which is which. I have a familiarity with awards, so when I see something with a sticker on it, I kind of have an idea of what that award is. But I do think that it is a little confusing. I do think that the platinum thing, the gold thing, the diamond thing, the whatever, best in, yada, yada, those are marketing people doing marketing things and they're wanting to differentiate themselves instead of creating some sort of a known ranking system that everybody has to use. Along that vein, Scott, looking in Whiskey Advocate magazine, yeah. all right? Yeah. This is their top 20 whiskey of the year award. Yeah, their latest issue. The one that comes out in winter. Full page ad by Journeyman. 100% wheat whiskey, cast strength, Journeyman, corsets, whips, and whiskey. 2022 Ascot Awards Whiskey of the Year. They and have a Fred Bitty quote on it. And they have a little medallion. 
They have the medallion. They had to pay for that. They had to pay for that. So as we're talking, there's a full page ad in Whiskey Advocate Magazine by Journeyman using their win to promote not just the bottle that won because they know that as time goes by, that's going to fade. They also give you three other of their popular whiskeys that you can go feast on. That's a perfect example of how Whiskey Advocate is the top magazine for the industry. And as you know, uh, in their spring 2020, they did name us as one of the whiskey podcasts that you should listen to. So you're doing the right thing right now. (laughs) You're doing what they told you to do. Right, you're doing what they suggested in a very friendly and correct manner. Yeah, so I mean, it was really awesome to talk to both of them. They both were very generous with their time. Also Christopher as well. Uh, We kind of just stumbled into the fact that Nico was a judge. I reached out to him just because he was a previous guy that we talked with just to see his take on entering whiskeys into competitions and he he goes i thought you want to talk to me because i'm a judge and we're like wait you're a judge he's like yeah and i'm like i go oh my god that's even better oh, so great it's like we just we had, stepped into that because we're like we had talked about like how are we going to find a judge to talk to to make this legit to get someone's perspective who does judging and man we just backed into that one and um hello and that was like really <laughs> I mean, it was a great interview, an awesome guy to know in the industry, and I can see why Fred uh, Minnick uses him. So the last thing we're going to end with is we like to drink whiskey on air whenever we can. And by the way, I've drank four different whiskeys while I've been talking to you the last uh, half hour. <laughs> yeah, so as we, have I. We uh, went out and got a bottle of the Russell Reserve Single Barrel Rye. All right. Yes, so this was the one that I said in the intro that had won an interesting set of awards that might go with the themes of just what we talked about. So the description from their website says very briefly, Russell's Reserve has produced some of the best rye whiskeys, and this non-chill filtered 104-proof single-barrel rye is no exception. Master distiller Eddie Russell planned this release for years, resulting in a big, bold whiskey that strikes a balance of spicy pepper, vanilla, and tobacco. It is a single barrel Kentucky straight rye, 104 proof. The mash bill is 51% rye, 37% corn, 12% malted barley. Right, so it's an egg style rye, high corn. It is high corn rye. The age is not stated, but it's purportedly six to eight years. The distiller, of course, is Wild Turkey. The owner is Campari Group, which mm-hmm. I just learned bought them in 2009. So was that when Greg Snyder was there? Uh, Maybe. Maybe, I don't know. They bought them from Pernod Ricard, who owned them previously for $575 million. Well, it's a bargain. That's a bargain. Yeah. The price is about 60. You pick this up, Ed, for about 60, right? 59.99. There you go. I got it up at Nash. I didn't get my discount. I said, why not? The girls, very well trained by Rich and Billy. <laughs> They said, this whiskey is at the lowest point. Oh, we interesting. If we give you your discount, Ed, we'll lose money on the bottle. Oh. I don't know how they know that, but I mean, they have a Maybe great Maybe it system. comes up on their I screen. I guess so, yeah. yeah. I was shocked to see it at 59. So 59 was a discount to me. I was ready to spend 65 for it. Yeah. That's what I'd seen it before. Yeah. Interesting. And tell the people why we're tasting this particular bottle. Okay. Of all the bottles in the world, Scott, why we chose this one. All right. So the awards that they won... The double platinum at the 2022 Ascot Awards. That's their highest rating. They won the gold at the 2022 John Barleycorn Awards, which is the second level. Yeah. But then they won the third level bronze award at the 2022 New York International Spirits Competition. So I thought that's a strange range of awards for a single whiskey to win first place, the second place, and the third place at three different awards. Right. So that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think people sleep on wild turkey because wild turkey is like a terrible memory of your childhood. 
like you know is, we yeah. all have an experience with the regular wild turkey or the or what we call in in our area the philly special where you would you would go into the city for a Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and either a shot of Old Crow or Wild Turkey for $4. Right. So you'd get a beer and a shot of Old Crow or Wild Turkey. And a lot of bad memories waking up with that headache. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but then the Wild Turkey 101s came out, and I really think that that started to legitimize the brand. And then if you want to know the history of Russell's Reserve, listen to the episode with Greg Snyder and Chicken Cock, because he talks about basically inventing the Russell Reserve brand in honor of Jimmy Russell. Yeah. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, what's interesting, what are you getting on the nose? I what? think the nose is in the neat glass is very mild. It's very mild, but you know what? I do pick up the tobacco <laughs> that they were talking about in the description. It smells like a nice sweet cigar, uh, unburnt. That is, tiny bit of fruity notes. It's to very it. like herbal floral note to it. It's weird. It's like there's a spice to it. There's no sweetness to it on the nose to me. Oh, just a tiny bit. I mean, you said tobacco. I mean, I feel. Oh, you know what? I got a tiny bit of caramel, but the tobacco really leaps out of me. It's a little honey or Ooh. sugar. Okay. But not vanilla. It's weird. It's, I said honey because it just tastes sweet. Don't call me honey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's taste it. Maybe it's sweeter on the palate than it is on the nose. Okay. Oh, that's oh. interesting. It's actually very sweet for a ride. Wow. Hmm. It's funny. I'm not really getting a whole lot of sweetness on it. I'm going to put a little water on it. I think I need to open it up a little bit. It's To me, it's very, very proof forward for being only 104. You're saying it's a hot 104. It's a hot 104. Yeah. I, I got a little bit of cola flavor just mm. then, like Coca-Cola. Interesting. I, got, I don't think it tastes too I hot. I got more of a root beer. I'll be honest with you. Okay. Maybe that's what you're tasting. It's different. This is a different rye than I thought it was going to be, but I, I kind of like it. It's I weird. Think, it's like I'm getting licorice on the finish too. Uh, yeah, okay. It's weird. Like an anise licorice finish. Do you get that at all? Leather licorice kind of like? Yeah. Are you getting any fruits? I did get a little bit of fruity on the nose. It was indistinct, and I could have been just like a, a sugary caramel. Um, I mean, there's sweetness. There's definitely some brown sugar involved in this. I've drank quite a few of the Russells. I've never walked away from a Russells being like, hmm, that's all right. They're all pretty good. And you know what? I can now see why this received disparate awards. Yeah. Flavors are deep and exceptional, but they're not blended. They're layered. Mm. So they come at you individually, and some people find that off-putting. Yeah. You know? The nose, I have notes here. Is Raybird 101, is that the site? Yeah, so that that's a guy who's okay. a wild turkey fiend. All right, so he says here that the nose would be toasted vanilla, apple pie, sweet clove, ginger snaps, herbal and floral spice, singed lemon peel, and oh, honey. Interesting. So I said honey and herbal and floral. I never got ginger. I never got clove. No. And then on the palate, confectioner sugar, bit of honey candy. Interesting. I didn't really get that. Or And yeah. then lemon pepper, and I didn't get that. But he does say sassafras, which is like root beer, yep. and brown sugar, glaze. I don't know what the glaze means. Like That's the part that pisses me off. Brown sugar, glaze. glaze. I don't know whatever I had brown sugar on that was glazed. Just say brown sugar. Scott, right now, what have you had brown sugar glaze on? I'll wait. Pecans? Bacon? Oh, shit. Yeah, bacon. That's a good point. <laughs> Sorry, Rare Bird. You're right. And then on the finish, medium to long finish with caramel drizzle, charred oak, tangerine zest, 
lemon licorice lozenge. So I said licorice on the finish. I did say that applewood and mint. So we we hit some notes. Some notes, but you didn't get any lemon on it. I didn't get a lot of citrus on this one. All right, so let's taste it again looking for citrus because he mentioned citrus on all three levels. Okay, so I picked two different ones because of the disparate awards. And but real quick, taste it again and tell me if you taste any citrus. Uh, I, I will. Don't you blow me off. Random belligerence. Ed thinks he's the boss of me. Edition. Oh my God. I want to explain what I'm doing. I have all this stuff to read. I, I know. Don't read it yet. Okay. I, that's what I'm explaining. And you're yelling at me. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't drink five whiskeys before we do the quick taste. <laughs> all right. So. The reason why I chose two different ones. The one you read was very complimentary. Yeah. The one that I'm about to read was less complimentary. What com- was Breaking Bourbon? From Breaking Bourbon. I knew it was Breaking Bourbon. They're so difficult there. I mean, I really love them because yeah. they're so intense with what they put out. Because okay. they kind of shit on a little bit. Okay. I'm interesting. On the nose, it says a straightforward and somewhat unimpressive aroma out of the gate. Faint notes of gingerbread and hay work against the aroma's heavier caramel and rye grain scents, there isn't anything flawed about its composition except for the fact that it doesn't leave much of an impression at all. A forceful swirl of the glass helps open up the aroma by bringing out more of its caramel notes, but the nose is just not as intense as it should be. Okay, I agree. I don't know if you need to say it's not as intense as it should be. Like, why should it be? Right, it's the nose. It's what it is. On the palate, an enjoyable display of classic rye notes are present with a notable omission of cinnamon. Its rye grain, caramel, and kettle corn notes don't reinvent the wheel, but they perform well together. Why would you say that there's not cinnamon? It's so random. It, there's not Jolly Rancher orange. There's not There's not green apple. Like You could spend an entire hour just talking about what's not in the whiskey. Yeah. Why would he expect cinnamon to be in this? Is there cinnamon present in other Russell Reserve products? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe he thinks cinnamon is always on a <laughs> rye i don't really know oh, maybe so the finish i think, I think he's a rye <laughs> the finish is uh mildly dry mildly, M- mildly uh, cyrus miley cyrus no My- jolene 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 <laughs> wait for the greatest finish a mildly dry, oaky, and caramel aftertaste rides this whiskey to completion. Mid-finish, some interchangeably sweet and spicy notes pop in the form of cherry, lemon cookie, and rye spice flavors. They don't stick around for very long, but are welcomed and help elevate this finish a notch. What's crazy about this, Scott, is I see all the negatives on your review, and I see all the positives over on mine. Yeah. This is a very complex whiskey, and it I is. think for $60, it's worth a try. I don't know if it's complex always in a good way. Just because it's complex doesn't mean it's a good thing. Yeah, so what was interesting about the tasting notes from Breaking Bourbon, they do the nose, the palate, and the yeah. finish. Then they do a uniqueness. Yeah. So the uniqueness for them, it says, and it might be interesting for people to know, and I didn't know this, right. the Russells are known for their love for bourbon and the passion that they put behind their bourbon making. They also aren't shy about their feelings toward rye whiskey either. Mm. And the Russells don't hold back from letting you know that they prefer bourbon over rye okay it still comes off as an afterthought for the company and doesn't receive equal footing as their bourbon mm. it's hard to say with certainty if this lack of attention trickles down to affecting the quality of the rye but it's safe to say that wild turkey rye doesn't stand toe-to-toe with their bourbon oh well, i mean that's interesting to say because i think that the wild turkey 101 rye is actually a very good rye it and is. they've had that for a while it is so you want to read my overall thing from the yeah Rare guy so yeah, he said so- yet another example of consistent excellence the russell reserve single barrel rye 
is everything a Kentucky rye whiskey should be. Well-balanced combination of herbal spice and zesty citrus, seamlessly laced with a sweet bourbon-esque charm. So much to love here. If you're looking for a high-quality rye whiskey that's practically guaranteed to satisfy, look no further than the Russell Reserve Single Barrel Rye. It may not tout the same level of profile variance as its bourbon cousin, but what it lacks in surprise, it makes up for in surety. So what's interesting is that they basically are agreeing with each other that the bourbons are better than the ryes with wild turkey, but the wild turkey lover mm-hmm. really enjoys it, whereas the breaking bourbon guy was sort of like, eh. I mean, this isn't a bad whiskey. No, Let, no, no. Let's stop. Collaborate and listen. <laughs> <laughs> the reason we chose it, the flavor profile is so unique, yes. and that's why we went out and found it, because remember we talked earlier about ones that weren't showing up in different competitions. This one did show up in a lot of competitions, and it was ranking differently. And we said, well, let's grab that one and see why. Yeah. And you know what? 1,000% Yeah. Why? We definitely can see it. If we were having a competition, it wouldn't achieve the ocho, but it wouldn't achieve the siete. Right. Like, (laughs) it it wouldn't get the eight for us. It would get the seven. It it wouldn't get eight-time gold. It would get, like, six or five. Oh, six. Right, right, right. Maybe five. (laughs) Oh, the cinco. Right. That's too low. I think it's the siete. Okay. All right. So the point is, it's a B for me. Okay. It's a strong B. I got you. You're not going to want to pour ginger ale on it. It isn't elite, but... Once again, I've said I've never been disappointed with the Russells, and I'm not disappointed now. No, it's a wonderful right. ride. And if it was in competition with some $100 whiskeys, you would be hard-pressed to place this somewhere. And be like, mm, there's a lot going on with this one. And you'd have to make a decision on what that a lot going on means to you. And you know what's really fascinating is that I did not taste any citrus, any lemon. Mm. Both of the tasting notes had lemon on it, no. but I actually do taste a little bit right now. It's after the sip is gone. It's after it's all out of my mouth. Have you put it's, water in? I did put water in. All right. Yeah, because I found a little lemon when I put water in. Yes, but it's not really on the taste. Oh, it's, it's what's so, left over. It's so mild, though. For, in to, your mouth. To be on the nose, palate, yeah. and finish, yeah, I don't no. get it in this barrel. I don't either. Maybe we have a different bottle than they had. I mean, Oh, it definitely do, because it's right, single barrel, right? right? But I will note that the tasting notes on the Russell's website does also mention lemon. Yeah, well, like that's the kind of the profile that they go for. Well, good for them. Yeah. So we did this to just kind of show what you're dealing with as a judge going into a competition. If I had a way of unifying it, like I would like to see Russell Reserve single barrel rye. If it's an 88, then the whole world knows it's an 88. Mm. And then if you put the juke joint whiskey from Blue Note, it's an 85. And then maybe the Stellum Fibonacci's a 94. And we all can just go with that. Like if there was a uniform code of whiskey, that'd be great. I don't know how we get there, but until then, it's important that we interpret what a double gold means to you. So if you're in the store, Scott and I have said since we started this podcast four years ago, we did it for the guy standing there looking at the wall of whiskey with 50 bucks in his hand. Because we've been there too, bro. Yeah. What do I buy? And the truth is, if something's double gold, it's worth taking a shot at. I think that's fair to say. Right, Scott? No, I agree. And the double gold, uh, there's a double platinum from the Ascot Awards. Uh, Sometimes gold, single gold, is the highest. So you kind of have to take some initiative and research some of the whiskey competitions to determine which awards they're giving and what their highest level is. But, you know, we kind of just did that. So all you have to do is really listen to our podcast. Right. And if you're not that invested, then you really should just stick to like, I don't know, Gentleman Jack. (laughs) Right. And stay safe. Sure. So tune in next week when we'll have the final part when we're going to try to put together our own tasting. We yeah. haven't figured out exactly the format no. yet. Hey, we've got seven days to figure it out. Yeah. 
but it's going to be a bang for your buck. So come back and see Scott and I and maybe a couple of friends. Yeah. We're going to set up our own judging panel and we'll see which one comes to the top. And that's where we're at. Yeah. And so thanks for joining for our second part of the whiskey entry on the whiskey competitions. And so for the Whiskey Tangent Podcast, I'm Ed. No, I'm Scott. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week. Later. Later.